Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is our Giro d'Italia 2020 Stage 13 recap brought to you by our partner, Lacole. We also have an interview with Jack Haig or Mitchelton Scott, who was at this Giro d'Italia before the team had to pull out uh, of the race, I think, at the end of the first week. And we've got that interview in the second half of this podcast. We've got the timestamps down below if you need to follow them. But as you know, our Giro show is made possible by our partner, Lacole. They produce performance cycling apparel, road cycling only. They supply the kit to Bahrain McLaren in the World Tour Peloton. You can see them. Bill Bauer, third on GC right now, wearing that LeCole kit. And if you want to check out their kit, you can find it at www.lecole.cc, L-E-C-O-L.cc. Enter the discount code, especially for Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast listeners, all caps, LR015 for 15% off at the checkout. Onto the race, stage 13 from Cervia to Monselice, 192Ks long, Carpaccio flat for the first 160Ks, and then two climbs, Ricolo, 4.3Ks at 8%, Category 4, and Descent Short Valley, Category 4 climb again, the Caluone, 2Ks at 9.9%, Descent, then a flat run in of about 17 to 18, oh, says 12Ks, but including the Descent, it was a run in of about 15 to 16Ks into the finish, after they finished that last climb, there were two intermediate sprints. The first one, 116Ks in. Um, but, yeah, breakaway went Benji. I, we didn't think a break was going to win today, to be honest, but a breakaway did go nonetheless. It has to go every day. Yes, and in there was the rider I was talking about, I think, last podcast when I said Bidar was in the breakaway yesterday. Today, his teammate Bouchard was in there. I was talking about him that he wasn't in the breakaway yet and that I expected him earlier on in this Giro to play a bigger role in breakaways and go for KOM because he was my KOM call and I I bottled it there. Anyway, Simon Pelot once again in the breakaway. He looks to be fighting for those kilometer points as well in that classification, but also for another classification. I'll talk about it in a second. Ravanelli for Androni once again. Third day for him in the breakaway. Contreras, I think that's his first day. Tonelli in there as well for Bardiani. Van Hooke for Lotto Sudal, so this is their GC guy. Pretty good ride from him. And Rota as the final breakaway member for Vinny Zabu. So a breakaway of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 today. They didn't really get a real gap. I think that Bora was controlling in the peloton pretty well. And once and so on, we saw that Ineos was also in that train, perhaps for Swift and also UAE who was more likely going to go for the likes of a Diego Ulisi. Demar had a steam not really pacing the stage, and we said that yesterday that we didn't expect it really. We didn't expect Demar to start pacing or controlling the stage because the finish is a bit too hard for him, and therefore he shouldn't use his riders before he gets potentially dropped on one of the latter climbs. Try the parkour, intermediate sprints, and one was taken by Simon Pelot, and that's where that other classification comes in. There are so many classifications here, like, I can't even follow anymore. We spoke about so many in the preview as well. You've got a classification for the kilometers that people are in breakaways. You've also got a classification, the super fighter, or whatever it's called. And that is for the points you get in the breakaway and intermediate (laughs) sprints. And I think that Sagan was in the lead there yesterday. I don't know if Simon Pelot got closer there because Pelot took the points here. I would have to take a look at that and I'll try to prepare myself on that niveau for tomorrow's podcast. Well, won't matter tomorrow with the time trial, but I'll try and talk about it on the day after the Piancavello stage just to let you guys know what that classification is and who is leading that. But outside of that, the only person that really mattered before the climb started was Demar taking one point at an intermediate sprint for the actual sprinting jersey. So many classifications. 
And Sagan never really sprinted for that one. But we started climbing the first ascension. And that was with about a good 30 kilometers to go. That climb is in the uh, terrain. It is that four kilometer climb, pretty steep sections, 20% max. And one portion of a good two kilometers, one and a half kilometers at 13.7% average. So yeah, that climb is honestly quite a bit harder than I was anticipating previously when I said the mark could win this stage. I think I said that on yesterday's occasion. And on the climb itself, Bora was really pushing it. Bora was trying to push it to try and drop Demar, but I'm going to throw it to you. Did they succeed? Well, they did succeed, but I mean, imagine picking Demar to win a hilly stage. I mean, only only an idiot would do that, um, considering. <laughs> <laughs> but Bora had Matteo Fabro lighting it up, and all was going to plan for them. They had Demar dropped. He was 30 seconds back. I think he lost 30 seconds on that first climb. He did have teammates with him. They dropped him, but the problem was for Bora Hansgrohe, well, okay, you drop him on the climbs, but then have you got the engines and the firepower to actually keep maintain that gap? Because the finish is so far from the second to last climb. And they, all they had it really was poor old little Matteo Favreau, I think, pacing on the front because the other riders in the team, Micah and Conrad, are rest, uh, sitting in because they're riding for GC, so they're not going to help Sagan. So Sagan... It's kind of difficult for Bora, and I, they feel like they made a mistake today miscalculating how difficult this parkour was and the riders they would have to actually work for Peter Sagan because they got to that before they even got to the last climb. FDJ had caught back up because Fabro, or whoever it was for Bora, was pulling so gently on the front because he was tired uh, that he couldn't maintain that gap, and FDJ caught them easily really before that last climb. And DeMar was actually able to move right to the front, still with two men with him. And I guess UAE hadn't helped at all. They they weren't helping. They had Ulysses as a favourite. Dakoni Quickstep hadn't, they'd paced a little bit, but hadn't helped too much. They get onto the final climb and it immediately becomes apparent that this climb is very, very difficult and has really, really steep pinches in it. Um, I don't know, there was a 500-metre section in the... From 500 metres to a K into the climb would average about 14% gradient in a two-kilometre climb. So Sagan is good at like 1K, 1.5K, 7%. He's still very good, as we saw the other day. But this this is now getting into different territory where it's GC guys, pure climbers coming into play um, on a climb like this. And that's who we saw, really. It was... Diego Ulisse, a guy who does really well in Gran Piemonte, attacking initially. He got brought back by Ruben Guerrero in the Maglia Azura, and then Almeida followed him. I think Quickstep wanted to get more bonus seconds for Almeida today. That was their main plan. And pretty much everyone got dropped that wasn't a GC contender, except for Diego Ulisse and a few of the Quickstep boys. So we had this big GC group that follows this Ulisse move, Sagan gets dropped. He gets spat out the back pretty far, actually. Not even that far ahead of Arno DeMar, who's also like way out of the picture. And then they obviously caught the break at this point. All the GC guys follow the move of Ulysses. You've got Bilbao, Keldman, Micah, Hindley, Conrad, um, Almeida and Malio Rosa, obviously. And Almeida's got with him, I think, Honore and... If I'm not wrong, uh, he had a couple of other quick-step riders with him as well. I think it was James Knox, maybe. Yeah, it was Knox and Mazanada. I think Knox was doing... And then they, they descend that last climb, and it's quick-step pacing with Knox and, I think, Mazanada and Honoré chopping off and swapping turns. Honoré, by the way, he is, he's legit. His Giro has been a very, very high level so far this year, um, and he's... It looks so good today, and he even did the lead out today. But Benji, what was the reason that Quickstep was pacing there? Why were Quickstep pacing not UAE with Sagan behind, with Ballerini on his wheel in that group? I guess what's the rationale for Quickstep doing all that work for sixteen k's? Well, I'm not sure this is the exact reason why they do it, but I would think that. If they don't bring Sagan to the sprint, nor Ballerini, that Almeida has an opportunity of getting a podium once again. We know he's one of the fastest of the GC members together with Conrad. Ulysses is in that group as well. So 
that is a potential top three. A top three means you get bonus seconds, and we've seen that this man has been trying to get bonus seconds throughout this whole Giro already, because on the fourth stage, he sprinted with Caicedo for two seconds. He got third twice already, so that's twice four seconds. If he get a po- gets a podium on this stage, then he'd be getting bonus seconds once again. And if that's, for example, a third spot, he'd be having 14 seconds already in total throughout this whole Giro. If he gets second, that would be 16 seconds. And if he actually magically ends up beating Ulysses and Conrad in the sprint, then, well, then he can get 10 seconds and a stage win. So I believe that they chose Almeida over Ballerini because they could add more seconds. Because just in case that this Giro does end up ending on Piancavallo, he's going to need every single second he he can get. And this will help. But the trade is that you're losing domestique power for the coming days. But then again, tomorrow's a time trial. They can rest a bit. So I'm not sure that trade-in is going to be too harsh on the domestique's side. So for me, it's probably that they're trying to get as many seconds in as possible before they get to Piancavallo, just in case the third week doesn't happen. And otherwise, every second gained is an extra second you have to try and defend in that third week, which, like, those 16 seconds... Or those 14 seconds or those 10 seconds. We don't know where he will end in the stage yet. Uh, those seconds will matter throughout the third week. They're not much, but it's honest work. So I believe that that is potentially the reason they were doing that and choosing to leave Ballerini behind, who could potentially win the sprint against Sagan, but it would have been a close one either way. Chasing behind was Sagan with the help eventually of Ineos working for Ben Swift, who is kind of good in stages like this too. They had Castroviejo pulling. So I thought it was all looking rosy for Sagan. And then, but they weren't making any inroads. And I think this was a clear case of Knox, you saw on the front for Quickstep. He's just obviously not as good a time trials to an engine as Castroviejo. But you've got to look at the context in which he's pulling, where he's probably quite fresh relative to Castroviejo having gone over that climb. Um, pretty easily with the GC group and he's pulling to the maximum whereas Castrillo was probably a little bit cooked and he's been in the break for a few days so that gap actually kept expanding out so eventually Sagan attacked with Thomas de Hent and then Ballerini was on his wheel and Ballerini was getting a free ride the whole time it made no sense that de Hent was pulling unless he had was just friendly with Sagan and Wanted to be nice for Peter Sagan because, yeah, he had no chance of winning the stage. The gap was at with 4Ks to go was about 30 seconds. And then they didn't really make much impression on it at all. So clear that it was going to be a sprint then between the GC guys and Diego Ulisi. Ulisi was clearly, in my view, uh, the favourite for the sprint out of that group, but it was kind of, wasn't that short odds, by the way, in the live betting markets. He was still 3-1. to one out of that group. Patrick Conrad took second, winning the bunch sprint, by the way, out of the GC guys earlier in this Giro. I think that was in stage five when Ghana won. Conrad won that bunch sprint ahead of Almeida and Kelderman to Camigliatello Silano. So I didn't think it was a lay-down misere that Almeida is some, like, Alaphilippe-level reduced bunch sprinter or Valverde. I don't think he's not that rider. Um, I actually think he's more of a... He's got a better engine in him than some of those, some of the other guys. Um, but still has a good punch. But he's not as good as Ulisse as a sprinter, that's for sure. Ulisse was the favourite. And in the sprint, it was Honoré that Quickstep held back in the last couple of Ks. He did a very, very strong lead out for Almeida. Maybe too strong, actually, um, when we see what happens. He leads out. He's got Ulysses on his wheel. Ulysses had actually, in one of the last corners in the last 700 metres, slipped up onto his wheel ahead of Almeida. Almeida's third wheel in the Malia Rosa behind him. Then Conrad, fourth wheel for Bora Hansgrohe. Honoré leads it out. Ulysses comes off his wheel pretty late. Almeida's on Ulysses' wheel, tries to come round him and just can't. And then Conrad actually comes with a late surge on the barriers. Everyone sprinted straight, by the way. Magic sprint from all of them. And Conrad surged to the line, but it was too late. Ulysse won by two-thirds of a bike wheel to Almeida, and Almeida came second by whew, about three inches to Conrad. Um, quite difficult to call it the line, but when you look at the overhead shot, you can see that Almeida was not actually 
continuing to accelerate past Ulysses at that point. He was finished, and it was actually Conrad that was going to probably win that sprint if it went for another 15 or 20 metres. So as long as Honoré's lead out was too good, and if he left Ulysses in, in the air a bit, a little bit sooner, maybe Almeida could have won this. Uh, but that's not a mistake by Honoré by any means. Um, I think he did a magic job. And he's, he, they really wanted to win the stage. They actually probably should have sprinted for, for Honoré out of that group. I think he's got a better sprint than, than Almeida. And also the other option was soft pedal at the front with Knox and Honoré and Masnada. When you've got that gap after the climb, makes Sagan chase you, brings Ballerini back, and then I think Ballerini would have been the clear favourite if Sagan would have had to have done all that work, bringing them back. It's a tough decision to make. You've got a decision between a uncertain probability of a stage win for Ballerini doing that and probably a, a very high likelihood if you don't do that and you pace of ensuring that Almeida gets bonus seconds and it's, pro- yeah, it's probably going to come first, second or third in the uh, reduced bunch, bunch sprint. So I don't think it's a disaster either way. Um, I maybe value a stage win, maximising stage win potential a little bit more than the bonus seconds and I would have liked to have seen them ride for Ballerini. But then again, the Giro is... And, and the importance of the races, the importance of the Malia Rosa in the leaders' jerseys for most people in the team is probably above that. Um, so I don't think it was a a massive mistake from Quickstep. Do you think it would have been a mistake to let Ballerini come back, Benji? Well, in hindsight, no, but you obviously can't say that beforehand because right now I think Ballerini would have gotten a, t- a top two anyway against Sian. Whether that would be first or second, I still believe that GC is more important than stage wins. <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit of the opposite in the opinion here then. Uh, I feel like the main goal right now for the Koenig must be protecting Almeida. This rider is in a position that he never thought that he'd be in. The team would not think that they'd be in this position with Almeida. Perhaps if Evenepoel started here, they were already prepared to have something like this. And in that case, Almeida would have been an extra domestique or the other way around if Almeida displayed a better form throughout the first two weeks. So yeah, I feel like the Koenig is put in a position where they have a pink jersey that is displaying the skill of potentially having a top five at the end of this Giro. And it's looking more and more likely to me personally that he is coming close to a top five possibility here. So they're technically making sure that the people are, perhaps if he loses pink, he might still be a place higher because of the bonus seconds at the end of the Giro. So maybe they're already thinking about the other places as well, not directly about winning this Giro, but about getting as much time in as possible to make sure that as little people as possible can pass him in the third week. Well, I think they're putting him in the best place to win this Giro because if... There's a lot of positive COVID tests on the second rest day and they've put him in a good position where he keeps the Malia Rosa on Piancavallo because he's gained so much time, then he would win the Giro. So I think they're doing the right thing probably when you consider all of it. Tomorrow is stage 14. Speaking of Almeida gaining more time, the individual time trial from Conegliano to Valdo Biadene, 34.1 Ks this time trial. It is actually not an easy one. It's a difficult one once again. You've got false flat uphill for the first 6Ks. Then you've got the Muro di Chattel Poggio, 1.1Ks at 12.1% average gradient. K1 points at the top of that's category 4. You've then got a plateau down, uh, gentle false flat downhill. You've got an intermediate time check at 17Ks in. Sorry, there was an intermediate time check at the top of that climb, by the way, 7Ks in. Second one's at 17. Third one is at 24.5 at Col San Martino. And then they start another climb and climbing again. And they do the Guia climb, 2.2Ks at 5.4%. And then rolling terrain downhill into the finish with a bit of an uphill kick to the line as well. And uh, I've got a man for the stage win tomorrow, Benji. It's uh, Joao Almeida, I think, is going to beat Ghana tomorrow. Um, 34Ks long, this TT, longer than the Imola one. 
and it's a lot rollier than the Imola one, Ganner on that 12% climb. And it's not just that climb as well. Um, or do you think I'm just trying to be contrarian just to be interesting, Benji? I don't know. You've got a possible rider that can do well here. It's a bit unclear whether on the prologue he was seriously benefited by the weather. If that's the case, his time trial will be disappointing here. If not, he could be up there. And therefore, I'm still going to keep myself at Ghana. I believe that he's going to win this time trial. But I have one question for you that you might be able to answer. You've got this time trial. You've got a hill of 12.1%. The fourth cat climb, 1.1 kilometer, one you said. Now, there's six kilometers of flat before that. I've heard people talk about a double bike change or starting on a normal bike and changing after the climb. Do you believe that a bike change is going to benefit? And if yes, will a double bike change even benefit anymore? No, I don't think you should double bike change because that's, no, because that's like 25 seconds, 23 seconds guarantee that you'll lose. I think given how we saw how the bike changes play out, they're not as smooth as and efficient as we think they might be or hope they'd be and you're adding a lot more risk as well. So I don't think you should do a double bike change and then I'd have to look at it. 1.1K is at 12.1%. It's probably not long enough to be honest because, yeah, normally the climb needs to be quite long the time they're on it for it to be worth it. Uh, we're talking like 15, 15 minutes, 17 minutes. Um, but it is quite steep. I don't know. It depends if they've drilled it. If you can do the bike change at like keep it to three seconds and then do the other bike change, oh, if they start on the road bike, but then they're losing time in the first 6K. So I just wouldn't do it because it's it's very marginal here. It's not clear. Like in the Tour de France stage or the Slovenian champs, it was obvious that a bike change was optimal. Um, but maybe we'll see it tomorrow. I think Dowsett said that a double bike change was possible. Is anyone going to do a just try and do a max effort on the, uh, the Cat 4 to get KOM points? I don't know, Guerrero might be, but I don't know. I think that Guerrero's got a lot of climbs after the stamp trial to try and defend that KOM jersey. So perhaps some people will try and go for it, but a fourth cat isn't going to gain him too many points either way. So I think that it might not be worth it, considering all the effort that will have to be spent in the coming days after that. Yeah, I don't know about this. You're, you are reminding me that that Almeida performance in the in the prologue could have been affected by wind so much. It's hard to say what's what's going to happen. What's your feeling on the GC contenders' performances tomorrow? Um, just just reminding everybody of where everyone is on GC going into this individual time trial. And sorry, I should have, should have said the top ten from the stage properly. Uh, yes, today Ulysses Almeida, Conrad Gagenhart fourth, Honore fifth. Uh, and that'll do for the for that stage. But GC positions right now is Almeida first, Kelderman second, 40 seconds back, Bilbao third, 49 seconds back, Pozzavivo fourth, a minute back, Nibali fifth, Conrad sixth, Hindley seventh, Micah eighth, Masnada ninth, Fulsang tenth, two minutes and 26 seconds back, McNulty 11th, 2.45 back. be interesting to see if he can actually move into the top four if he does a really 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 good performance tomorrow i think it's certainly possible um i think i think full will move up and i think pots vivo might not actually have a completely trash tt i think he might actually go okay tomorrow um especially on that that punchy wall i don't have a great handle on it to be honest i think bill bow again he did a pretty good TT, but he didn't go up a good time. I'd say he'd have to be one of the favourites for the stage as well, and the favourites out of the GC men. Um, Bill Bow, he did pretty good time trial in Andalusia, but then that stage five Andalusia. Yeah, I encourage you guys go and look at that profile from Andalusia. It's a bit shorter, but it's got rolly hills in it, and uh, full had a climb in it about seven percent average gradient, another one at ten percent. Uh, and Fulsang came second there. McNulty was nine seconds behind him. Fulsang nearly won the stage. Bill Bow was three seconds behind him. So I think Bill Bow, Fulsang, McNulty will do really good TTs. Nibali, I don't know. 
how he'll go tomorrow, uh, or Mike or Conrad. There's none, none are really terrible and none are really outstanding, or do you think it's more polarised between them, Benji? I don't think it's going to be polarised, but I think that McNulty is going to make a, a move into top 10. I believe that the Fulsang Andalusia ITT is a bit overrated in the sense that he wasn't in, in an extreme form compared to his competitors there. We had the likes of a Jack Haig, a wonderful human that we'll talk about in a second and talk to in a second, coming uh, very close in that Andalusia as well. So I believe that it's very difficult to look at preseason races and base our opinion on it here right now. And definitely considering there's that COVID period in between that might have influenced a lot. We haven't seen a, an extremely strong full sign Desigero, as in battering the rest. He's had mechanicals, of course, but that doesn't really take away from his strength. I just feel like if Fulsang was on the level of his Andalusia compared to his competitors, then he would have tried to attack on one of the hill stages more and tried to do damage there. But considering he hasn't, I'm guessing that he couldn't at that point. Now, the likes of Amaznada, I don't know about his time trial. I generally don't. I don't think it's that amazing. Hindley and Conrad, uh, mediocre in my opinion as well. Micah as well. I think that the better charm trialist is indeed going to be Bilbao. I think Kelderman is rather underrated in that. So I think that he's going to surprise us all and come pretty close in there as well. In GC at least. I don't know in the stage itself. And I think that Nibali is like a tiny bit under the qualities of a Kelderman in time trial. I always rate a Nibali on a similar level as Kreisweg in IT or just a tiny bit under Kreisweg. And I think Kelderman's pretty good in time trial as well. He was... Dutch champion at one point, if I recall correctly, of time trialing. The one Van Emden didn't win. And Almeida is going to be a mystery. I can't tell you. We've got a time trial, a prologue that was pretty much based on weather conditions so much that it changed by half a minute throughout the whole parkour, or even minutes. And therefore, it's unclear whether his skill was what brought him to this position or whether the weather benefited him so much that he's in that position. So I guess we're going to find that out tomorrow as well, which is something I'm very curious about. Let's hope the weather is like even for everybody because I dislike time trials where it's unfair due to the weather. I just, I have something against it. Obviously the teams could have changed that on the uh, first stage, but we won't go back into that. Uh, we won't beat this dead horse. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, I think that Bilbao is going to be the better one out of GC favorites and come pretty close to Almeida in GC. So looking forward to the stage. Honestly, I am looking forward to see the level of GC favorites in ITT. I'm looking forward to Ghana's new victory. So you think Ghana's going to win? Yeah, I do. All right, I'm going to go. I don't think I don't think Ghana will win. I think I don't have a good handle on exactly who will beat him. It could be Almeida. I think Mikel Björk. Mikael Bjerg is a really good shout to come at least top three in the ITT tomorrow. But that was our Giro d'Italia Stage 13 recap and Stage 14 preview brought to you by our partner, LaCole. Now we're moving on to our interview with Jack Haig of Michigan Scott, which we promised at the start of this podcast episode. Welcome back, Jack Haig, to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. Well, first time you've been on the podcast. Uh, second time you've been on, you were on the, the YouTube channel at the start of lockdown. and introduce you to Benji, my co-host. So today we're going to be talking about Jack's uh, Giro d'Italia. If you don't know, Jack Haig uh, is on Mitchelton Scott. He was riding, went to the Giro with their team, riding in support of Simon Yates. And I thought maybe going for stage wins after uh, Yates pulled out with the positive COVID test. Bit of A lot happened in that first couple of weeks of the Giro d'Italia, and he's been right in the thick of it. So a lot spoken about in the press about whether the Giro is safe or what's been going on, etc. So I thought instead of us speculating about it uh, like we did a little bit yesterday, why don't we ask a rider that was was actually there? So welcome back, Jack. Where are you now? Are you back home in, in Spain? Thanks for having me back on. Um, yeah, I managed to get home to Andorra, but uh, because of the close contact I had with Simon as well as some of the other staff members in the team that test positive for COVID, I'm actually staying in a... Airbnb about 200 meters away from my apartment, which is a little bit weird, but I'm going to be here for about seven days and I'll do another PCR COVID test on Monday. And hopefully if the result comes back negative, 
I should be able to go home Tuesday afternoon. Okay, yeah, that that sucks, I guess. But at least it's not the full two-week quarantine. Um, and you were – were you rooming with other riders at the Giro d'Italia and was that the case in the Tour de France? For some reason I had in my head that all the riders were in their own individual rooms during the Tour, whereas was that different at the Giro or um, – or was it the same across both races? To be honest, I'm not actually sure what uh, Mitchelton did at the Tour de France, whether they were rooming solo or not. I know some teams like uh, Education First, they definitely have solo rooms for every single rider. But at the Giro, we were all sharing rooms. I was sharing uh, with Simon until after the Mount Etna stage. And then from after that stage, I was rooming solo. So Simon had his own room and I was rooming solo, but other guys were all sharing. Yeah, and I guess, Benji, remind everyone, what's what came out yesterday, I think there's a more press broke uh, yesterday after we finished recording. I, I can't remember the exact details between the UCI and Education First, and then maybe remind everyone or tell everyone what the UCI has come out with and said they're going to do now at the Giro uh, going forward because I think we said they should do certain things and obviously they listened to the podcast 20 minutes after uh, we fin- we uploaded it. So yesterday we had Evadication First who launched a bit of a campaign is what was listed in articles. They had a bit of an appeal at UCI. They sent a letter to UCI to ask the Giro to be stopped after the Piancavallo stage. So that is a stage on Sunday, the mountain stage of week two the uh, only mountain stage in week two. So they were saying, you've got mountain terrain, you've got hill terrain, you've got a time trial, so there can still be a battle for GC, and you'd have it ending this week instead of, obviously, in Milano in about a week and a half now. Now, the UCI pretty much rejected that immediately. I don't think that they went too in-depth into the discussion either. It felt like it was a very quick rejection since it's the same day or something. But... They did actually decide, La Passion decided to improve the testing in the sense that they are going to do more tests. And I think they've already done more tests by adding a number of rapid tests in between. Once again, I'm not a scientist. I won't pretend to be. So don't ask me how good certain tests are, how good PCR tests are and so forth. But they're improving that testing and so forth. Now, did you have anything to add to that? Or is that about what you meant me to say? Yeah, I think that's all that came out. And also, sorry, Veni, or Veni, the, the RCS, the head of RCS, came out with a statement saying, um, continuing like the Cold War political themes of all these statements that come from either uh, the head of the UCI or RCS. He was like, the teens complaining are a destabilizing political force trying to upend the power structure that is in cycling. I think Jack and I spoke about um, sort of the power imbalances. Uh, when we spoke at the start of lockdown. But, Jack, two-week Grand Tour, do you think, would that actually be fair if they called it on the second rest day? Would you just put an asterisk asterisk on the guy that won overall or would you just say, hey, this was a failed attempt at a Grand Tour? No, there's no winner. Uh, it's an interesting one because I think you also had maybe a similar situation in Paris-Nice a little bit earlier on this year where the final stage was cancelled and there was also a few teams that, didn't go. Mitchelson was uh, part of part of that. That didn't was part of the, one of the teams that didn't go. So, I think for a Grand Tour, yeah, it'd be difficult to call a winner after two weeks. But I think it could be a good compromise considering what has happened with the COVID, as well as I guess some of the bad weather that is also forecast for the third week. But it's a very, very tough call to make because obviously the prestige and what makes a Grand Tour a Grand Tour is the length. Yeah, and also you might have Nibley turning around saying, well, I've been riding in the wheels, chilling for two weeks, reserving energy for that third beast week, um, and I didn't care about the Maglia Rosa and uh, Quickstep had been burning all their matches with Almeida going for every sprint and bonus seconds uh, to keep the Maglia Rosa and he was going to, theory being Almeida is going to fade away in the third week. So, yeah, it would be it would be unfair to somebody, but sometimes life is just unfair. You know, cold is around last year. Simon Yates, I think it was, was 
clear on that stage and yeah stage got cancelled because they couldn't really do anything else about it but in the Giro Jack there's been a lot of press about oh there's been members of the public at buffets and the hotels etc then Sunweb came out today and said well our team was never sharing that buffet was your sense I think I remember we were talking uh, before it kind of blew up that it was your sense that it was not a great control situation at the Giro re-COVID and managing that um, compared to maybe what you heard about how ASO managed it at the Tour? I can't comment too much on how ASO handled the Tour as I wasn't there and I didn't actually talk to many riders about it. But uh, at the Giro, the first hotel, we did have quite a few teams sharing as well as the race organisation. I think maybe... It was Middleton, uh, Bora, Ineos, and RCS were all sharing the same hotel. So, uh, and uh, the kind of quick step were also there. So it's four teams and the race organisers at a quite a big hotel. And obviously, Ineos and Bora both have kitchen trucks as well as food trucks. So all their riders were eating inside a inside their trucks but their staff were still sharing the same buffet and then for the riders of Mitchelton and Quickstep we both have chefs and then they obviously give a buffet for just the riders but then the staff are using the buffet or the hotel or getting table service. Fair enough okay so it sounds like some teams are taking or have the maybe the financial means to take more more precautions do you think there's a divide in the peloton in the attitude towards covid i mean it's a lot of a lot of different riders from different backgrounds that make up the pro peloton i guess there'd be some people who are like this is my livelihood i need to pay my mortgage i've got a kid on the way or something let me race the giro i'm more scared about crashing at 80 kilometers an hour and breaking every bone in my body than covid so just just let me race and then a I presume, obviously, there's other riders who are like, this is crazy that we're racing in the middle of a pandemic um, with a respiratory <laughs> illness that could affect my career if I catch it because uh, it's sort of not known what the permanent effects could be. Is there that divide or is it more one or the other in the pro peloton? There's probably a subtle divide there where there are riders that are secure with a contract for next year um, have jobs and then there are also riders that are racing to get a result to try and find a contract for next year and obviously if the race is cancelled they're losing that opportunity but I think everyone has been quite respectful of the hygiene protocols like you see all the riders going to and from sign on everyone wears a mask there's always hand sanitizer everywhere and in terms of from what I can observe just in that little start area before the race everyone is wearing masks and being quite respectful um, so it's difficult to say how big that divide is, but I'm sure there are some riders that have in their mind that they're safe next year and they would prefer to eliminate as much risk as possible. But obviously our sport also needs the racing to continue because if there's no racing, then there's no jobs. Exactly. It's not just the riders. It's probably RCS employ a lot of people to race indirectly employs a lot of people and eventually yeah, the races will just have to continue. Because other all you just say, cycling has to cannot continue unless until the COVID pandemic stops um, completely. But yeah, Benji, you you've got the Tour of Flanders coming up in your neck of the woods uh, this weekend. What sort of have you noticed Flanders Classic doing anything like really over the top in making sure the race is, is carried out safely. I heard about TV ads or something. I'm obviously not in Flanders and I don't watch your local television, so you're going to have to fill me in here. From what I know about how Flanders Classic is preparing the Tour of Flanders, we've got, first of all, ads on the internet, ads on TV and so forth about watching it at home. They are really, really putting a real important note on watch at home, don't come to the race, to prevent gatherings at the side of the road and so forth. So that is one of the clear protocols that they're trying to follow as much as possible because I think there is a, a meeting from the actual Belgian government tonight with a, a presentation for the whole country about what the new rules are going to be in the couple of weeks following. 
and if that will influence Tour of Flanders or not, no clue, because we don't yet know what date those rules would start. So it's going to be a curious evening. Let's hope... Uh, well, I've always got the opinion that you can do measures and so forth, because safety is extremely, extremely important. And you also got to try and keep it so that you don't over measure. So you got to find the balance in between. And it's obviously hard for rule makers to, to do that. So I won't be judging here on any government campaigns for it. But I think that Turflans is prepping this really well. And that's not because I'm biased towards the Flemish races or anything. Uh, so far, it's looking really good. And I hope that it stays that way and that we see a race that is safe for the riders, safe for the people by the side of the road, and just in general, safe, but also well-planned and well-protocoled. But additionally, I'd like to ask Jack here, do you feel like the people by the side of the road in the Tour of Italy, in the Giro d'Italia, were following protocols, or is it something like a good few months ago in the Route Occitanie, there were cases where half a mountain was wearing no masks and hugging each other. So I want to know whether uh, the public is keeping up with the measures. There's definitely much less mask wearing in uh, the Giro compared to what I noticed at the first race that I came back to at Welter Burgos. There, every person on the side of the road, even in the middle of nowhere in Burgos, they were wearing a mask. In uh, Italy, in during the Giro, it was maybe between 40% not wearing a mask, 60% wearing a mask, or people wearing the mask sort of incorrectly or on their chin or something like this, which doesn't really help. But I'm not sure whether the danger to us as riders comes from so much that gathering. It's more probably the general population that is gathering there, whereas when we're riding past so fast, I'm not sure. Obviously, like you said before, we're not scientists or doctors or anything. But if I was to have a guess, it's not going to impact us as much as the gathering that was there. And I think a good point you made before about the Flanders Classics is we're trying to, or race organisers are trying to figure out that correct balance. And I don't think anyone believes the virus is going to go away. But I think with more time, that balance will be, be better and we'll come up with a common ground that is good enough for all the race organisers, the TV coverage, the general public, at, that we can have a safe organised event. That's enough COVID talk. Too much of it <laughs> always dominates. <laughs> True. Even when the racing is on, it just dominates everything. Let's let's talk about something, some ho some hope. Jack, next year, Bahrain, McLaren, big move for you going there next year. Um, got a multi-year deal there. How long is it for? What three-year deal at Bahrain, yeah. McLaren? I've seen re reported. Is what's the goal for you next year? Is it to be a 100% leader in just one week races like you were at, I think, uh, and what was it, Andalusia this year? Or is it, has there been an, an agreement or a discussion about you being a supported leader at a Grand Tour next year? Well, there's still a lot of planning to go ahead for next year. One, we need to finish this year and wait and see what the racing actually is going to look like for next year. I know the calendars have been released, but like everything that is going on at the moment, we need to see and assess the situation as well as the team is uh, recruiting new riders and depending on the final composition of the Bahrain McLaren team next year will determine a little bit of what my role will be. Obviously they still have uh, Mikkel Lander next year and Pelo Bilbao. Both of them, uh, especially Pelo at the moment is performing super well. So there's some support that I can also have there, but hopefully I'll get some uh, leadership in the week-long races, similar to what I had at the beginning of this year with Valencia and Ruta del Sol, um, and then potentially go in as a co-leader into a bigger race, but we'll have to wait and see until the final planning's made there. And say if you were like a, a rider out of contract, is it better making more money in the long run? Because no one knows what any salaries are in the in the world tour. It's not like the NBA where every single salary is publicized. Is it better to maybe take a two-year deal at a team where I'm trying to think of a, a better example of a rider that's done this uh, recently? Maybe even Carapath, who's gone to Movistar initially, gets that opportunity at, to actually lead 
Movistar, well, he wasn't even leading Movistar this year. Right? He just decided he was leading them in 2019. <laughs> Ends up winning the race. And then that just, that next contract at Ineos, I assume, is just massive. Um, whereas maybe other riders, um, if they don't change teams, they sort of accept the situation they're in at a team and then maybe they get okay results, uh, but they're mainly a support rider, but they maybe get a better salary than they would have if they went to a Movistar or, or a different team. Do you think riders are making decisions like that regularly about leadership opportunities and taking pay cuts so that then well, – sorry, I'll rephrase that. Is there a – is there such a big difference between the pay for a guy who takes out maybe second in Paris-Nice and then third at the Vuelta compared to someone who maybe consistently wins a few one pro races, maybe third in Paris-Nice, but then fifth in Lombardia, et cetera? Is there, a, is there a really big gap between those two salaries? Like you said, it's quite difficult to judge even as a rider in the pro peloton to know the salaries um everyone's somewhat secretive about it all and i don't think anyone really knows other than the really big management companies that manage a lot of riders um and it also really depends on that contract year say for example this year there's a massive amount of riders on the market so then your your value goes down because everyone is looking for a contract whereas in other years when maybe there isn't so many riders on the market you can bring your value up and it also depends on what some of the bigger teams are looking for. For example, with Ineos, Jumbo, and maybe even UAE now after Pogacar at the Tour de France, these guys are probably looking for those sort of second tier climbers that aren't quite GC leaders or are willing to sacrifice that GC leadership to support a rider. And those teams can afford to pay extra. So it's a bit of a tricky balance there. And for example, like going to somewhere like Ineos where a lot of people say maybe you'll lose the opportunity and it really depends on maybe the age and where what your desires are. If you're a super competitive person, you might choose not to go to Ineos and go to somewhere like Movistar and take more opportunity and less money, especially if you're a younger rider. Whereas maybe if you're coming through and you're up until your 30s, mid-30s and you're looking for just stability, a good contract, and to ride it out the year, then, yeah, there's a lot of juggling and balancing to go on there. To put a bit of a spotlight on under-23 riders who might be in a situation where they had no world championships under-23 to show off their skills, they had no Tudor Lovenir, if I recall correctly, as well. You were second in Lovenir, I think, in 2015, the year before you ventured onto Orica. Do you believe that if you weren't having a Avenir that year, if, for example, COVID struck in that year in 2015, it would have influenced your career a lot? It's hard to say because I was in quite a fortunate position where Mitchelton actually reached out to me before my Tour de year result. Um, it, they became interested in me uh, after I won the Best Young Riders jersey at the Tour Down Under with UniSA and then uh, went on to finish third in the Herald Sun Tour. And they allowed me to have an extra year of under 23 because I hadn't really raced in Europe. I'd only raced uh, in Australia on the road and I'd done mountain biking in Europe. So I was in quite a fortunate position there. So it's kind of hard to say from personal experience, but I would imagine it's much harder, especially this year, for those under 23 riders to showcase their talent and get that contract. Yeah, I think a similar thing happened with some of the younger Australian guys that got World Tour contract for next year, um, they did a good job in the Australian races and there were World Tour teams circling for their contract there. That being said, it's just a shame because you look at 2018 under-23 World Champs road race, you look at who was in the select class group like Pogaccia, he or she, Padun, who was in the break yesterday for Bahrain, um, and you see all those names and they get that big that big race experience and yeah, we didn't we didn't get to see that. So I'm sure it will have some sort of effect not having those development races because honestly, I don't think professional cycling scouting is that good um, because and I think those big races where it's all televised, 
a lot of the World Tour teams kind of prick up their ears and go, oh, he's pretty good. <laughs> he came third in that race. Um, whereas they're maybe not looking at the entire of those, like Italian, that Italian circuit. Um, but at Bahrain next year, Jack, how does that actually influence your life moving team from maybe an Australian-based team? You're living in Andorra. They've got a different location for their service course, different team camps. Like it's different maybe to the NBA where players literally have to move their accommodation to their new city if they get traded, for example. Does anything really change for you other than the location of your winter training camp? Um, to be honest, it's the first time I've changed teams. I've always been professional with Mitchelton, so it's going to be a bit of a new experience for myself. But uh, so far, because of the COVID situation, there hasn't been so much planning for winter activities yet. I do know that uh, the team has an agreement with a hotel in uh, down near Calpe, and they normally do their winter training camps down there. Um, so I'll have to head down there for that, which is a little bit different. Normally, Mitchelson does just that riding training camp that sort of gets a little bit of media because we end up doing a ridiculous amount of hours in a week, but it's actually quite a fun experience. So not much will change other than the equipment um, and there won't actually be another rider, I don't think, living in Andorra because Ivan Cortina is riding for Bahrain this year and lives quite close to me here but is uh, moving on to Movistar next year. But just in case it does happen this third week in the Giro, Jack, I don't think people are ready or understand how bad this weather and the weather conditions could be on the Stelvio if it goes ahead. I think what can we expect to see if it does go ahead from the riders, um, given that there could be like temperatures of minus two at the top of the Stelvio. I didn't do the Giro a couple of years ago, but I know that some of the guys in the team were talking about some horror stage they had to do Garvia Stelvio in the snow and uh, people were getting changed in a hotel at the top of Stelvio. Riders were literally getting off their bike, going into a hotel, getting their rain bag out of the team car, complete kit change from socks to undershirt and then descending the hill, climbing up the next one and then doing exactly the same thing again. So in extreme cold weather like that, anything can happen and it's so easy to not fuel because it's so hard to reach into your pockets and have the dexterity in your hands to open a bar or have a gel that people can implode really, really quickly. Thanks again for coming on to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with me and Benji. Jack, I presume this is season over for you, actually. You're not doing the Vuelta sneakily next week, are you? <laughs> as, far as, <laughs> as far as I know, I'm not doing Vuelta. Um, nah, but yeah, my season will be done. Uh, with the COVID sort of precautionary quarantine that I'm doing at the moment, it's actually not possible for me to go to Vuelta. So it's quite a strange way to finish the season. And it was also my last race with the Mitchelton Scott team. So it was a little bit sad to end this way and not be able to finish on a high note. But um, yeah, it is what it is. Strange year.